Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 135. My name is Tyler. Of course, you have Pratik and Nick here as well. Please follow, please share the podcast. It really helps us out. But with that, we're going to be kicking it right off with Pratik. So Pratik, I know you love your headlines. What's the first headline of the day? Are you with him or are you against him? In the aftermath of Donald Trump's plea, the party's stance becomes a burning question. Speaker Kevin McCarthy promptly railed donors with an email urging them to stand with Trump decrying the witch hunt. Addressing reporters, McCarthy said, I've been pretty clear on this all the way through. I think the country is very frustrated when you don't feel that there's equal justice. The president hasn't even been out of the office for four years, but you're holding him to a higher standard than you've ever held anybody else. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell refrained from criticizing, merely stating that he wouldn't comment on candidates. Former Vice President Mike Pence said he did not. uh, He does not know why other 2024 presidential candidates presume former President Donald Trump to be guilty of the charges he is facing. During a public meeting, MTG paralleled Trump's case with the January 6th insurrection, asserting scrutiny um, fell on the Justice Department, not defendants. Prominent Republicans like New York Republican Eliza Stefanik, the fourth highest ranking Republican in the House, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, um, Florida Representative Byron Donalds, the infamous Florida Rep Matt Gates, and Pennsylvania Rep Eric Schmidt voiced unwavering support or denouncing the case as a political hit job. While Ohio Senator J.D. Vance vowed to block DOG nominees, labeling Trump a victim and accused Garland of harassment. Senator Marco Rubio acknowledged Trump mishandled documents of being wrong, but argued no harm occurred without disclosure to foreign entities. Lastly, Lisa Murkowski found the indictment damning, while Mitt Romney questioned Trump's motives and criticized his failure to comply. Among the other hopefuls, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Francis Suarez have all said that they would pardon Trump if they were elected. This is where Republican politicians stand, but the question is, where do the voters stand? The most recent coefficient poll shows Trump holding steady at 47%, DeSantis at 13%, Christie at 9%, Pence at 5%, and Haley, Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott all tied at 3%. So the reason I'm bringing up the story is the main thing is we all know, like, oh man, what what do you people feel about Trump? Like, is Trump guilty? Is Trump innocent? But one thing that we've seen as a big, you know, seen like, you know, in general consensus is that a lot of the party is generally in favor of Trump. You look at the people like the Freedom Caucus side, you look at people like McCarthy, which is the establishment side. A lot of them have a lot of mixed feelings on Donald Trump. So the question about it is like, what are people with him or against him? And based on that, that's all going to translate to whenever the general elections happen. So Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts on Donald Trump and how the party feels about him? Well, do you think DeSantis even has a chance at this point? Like Trump has so much momentum behind him as a result of this. If this hadn't happened, it still would have been, you know, a couple months ago, DeSantis was seen as number one. He started being Trump in the polls. Trump was seen as sort of a loser from the last election and it was DeSantis who was going to come in new face new energy he was going to win the party and beat Joe Biden but now after this court case happens I love how the more Donald Trump has things against him it's like the more support he has and I get that part of it is him framing it as a witch hunt against him 
But the fact is that he, he very clearly did wrong here. And Chris Christie, which we'll get to later, is one of the few Republicans who actually has the balls to say that he did something wrong, which doesn't make any sense for the other candidates. I get that they need to appeal to the base and they're looking after the same voters that would vote for Trump. And so they can't be too against him. You know, it's the Republicans versus the Democrats. This is what this um, whole election is about. But at the same time, you're trying to beat Trump. I, I feel like it should be a layup to say this guy has failed. He's been a failure. The Republicans have been losing the last three major elections for the House, Senate, and presidency. Trump is the cause of that, and he's not going to win this time. You need to vote for someone else. And it's just sad that, or not sad, but, you know, it's sad that, it actually is sad that this is like the one thing that's holding him together. I think without this, Trump actually would have had to try to win the primary. Like DeSantis would have actually given it to him on the stage and he would have had a tough time. Now it seems like he's sailing through it with all these major Republicans that you named, all of them, major voices in the party, saying you need to back Trump, otherwise we're going to lose. We need to back Trump, otherwise the Democrats are going to come after you. You need to back Trump or else. And so, Tyler, what are your thoughts on this? I, 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 follow, I have a similar sentiment, but I think the reason they're doing it is because this is what's demanded by their constituents. Like, if you're Marco Rubio... I mean, basically all of Trump's base are people that you're trying to siphon off, and they all believe there is some deep state conspiracy that made it that Trump was able to be indicted, and because of that, we need to defend him. So what are they supposed to do? They're kind of caught in between a rock and a hard place. Chris Christie's whole campaign is about attacking Trump, and that's been very clear, and we're going to be getting into that. Um, but basically everyone else is just trying to ride the coattails of Trump's, it seems like. And you're right. How do they take any sort of edge over him if they're just going to be complimenting him. The worst case being Mike Pence, this guy that Trump literally ruined his career. And he comes out and saying, of course, I'm against wrongdoing, but there's clearly some injustice going one more one way than the other, you know, in his very political voice. But at the same time, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're not helping yourself at all. Are you campaigning for president or are you there to be another mouthpiece to get Trump to win that primary election. The biggest question to me out of all this actually doesn't have as much to do with the Republican primary. It has to do with the general election. Do the Democrats, are they, will they be excited about voting against Trump because he was indicted for that very fact? Or is it everything else that Trump embodies and has done in office? I'm not quite sure. But to me, that's a more interesting question because it's clear based off the polls that the Republicans, they don't really care that Trump was indicted. They think there's a witch hunt. They think that uh, ju the justice system is not working properly right now. Um, that, that's kind of a dangerous situation for a country. I actually don't think we've had this situation in quite some time, at least in my lifetime. So watching it all play out is very interesting, but it looks like Trump's going to be winning the primary. And then in the general election, this is going to reemerge as a topic. Yeah. So some young Republicans like Charlie Kirk, who's a popular online voice for conservatives, young conservatives specifically, um, Charlie and a bunch of other conservatives online have basically said this was right after the indictment came out. They said all the other candidates need to drop out of the race. You need to show solidarity get out of the way. We need to support Trump because the Democrats are coming after us and we all need to rally around one figure and defeat them in this next election. Prateek, you're a Republican. Do you think that other candidates should drop out and back Trump in light of his recent arraignment? I don't think that they should back Trump. I think that if there's enough candidates that are anti-Trump, and now you've seen that there's like 13 candidates apparently that are all trying to become president because they all think they're better than Trump. So in that case, you all you need all these people to rally around one person. Now, my context would be 
that in terms of that, you are, I mean, things that have been said are absolutely correct. Like Christie was saying that Trump is a three-time loser that lost in 18, 20, and 22. He's right. Trump lost the Senate, Trump lost the House, and Trump lost the presidency. He's lost in a lot of these elections where he should have like done better, but he didn't. So the argument is, is that a lot of these other people that are the establishment wing of the party, they don't want Trump because they feel that if Trump comes, then he's also going to lead to a lot of these other people down ballot losing. And the weird thing about the establishment side, we've talked about this, like you have the Kevin McCarthy side. In the past, whoever is the establishment was always anti-Trump. In the current situation, the loudest voice in support of Donald Trump is the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is the face of the establishment. Then you have the opposite side, your Mitch McConnell train. Those guys hate Trump with a passion. And then you have the other ironic side, the Freedom Caucus, who is traditionally in favor of Trump and who is uh, vehemently opposed to anything that Kevin McCarthy does or any of Kevin McCarthy's cronies that are in support of Trump. So it's a weird like situation within the party. And I think that's the main situation that you're seeing translated right now. All these people that are running are all scared. They don't, they think that right now with the current situation, many of these people like that aren't me, because I don't think Donald Trump could beat Joe Biden if it was just today, unless something happens, because Joe Biden is incumbent and Donald Trump has already lost to him. I think both things of that nature are very important. But at the same time, many people in our country don't see it that way. And they would be looking at it as that, oh, well, Trump is getting all these scandals and Trump is winning because of these scandals. If anything, all of these different things that are going on, like the box case, that is being looked at at a higher level than Watergate because it's been, it caused him to become indicted. All these other presidents haven't been indicted. There's been no other vice presidents like Pence that have been indicted, but Trump was indicted. So all of that stuff kind of plays into the story. But I think the fact that Trump being the biggest victim of all time, the fact that he's able to sell himself as being a victim constantly, no matter what happens, if anything happens, it's everyone else's fault. It's not Trump's fault. And because he can do that, that's what helps him stand out. And I think all these other people now, the people that are not even willing to say his name, they want a position in the Trump White House if Trump wins. And they think that Trump does have a chance of winning because Biden's presidency has been really bad. The situation, though, falls around that Pen Trump has already lost to Biden. And for me, as a Republican voter, irrespective of whether I like Trump or I don't like Trump, the important part is, is that he lost already. I would rather have somebody that you know has a potential chance of winning because why would you stick up, stick out a candidate that has already lost to run again and potentially lose? That's oh, the unless issue. unless Biden did something so catastrophic that there was exactly. actually a good chance, and, and that's not going to happen. And incumbents usually win. Yeah, they do, but Trump didn't win. But but what I will say is, I think a candidate that's going to take down Trump has got to take some big risks. It's got to take some big chances. And as of yet, they've all been incredibly passive. You're right. They might be vying for a position in the White House, but he's so unlikely to win that why would you be doing that? Take the chance. If you're going to run for office and not just have it as a way to get yourself publicity and maybe in the future you could be a governor of some place and then president in 20 years, then, then take a chance. Take a risk. Attack Trump. That's what I respect about Chris Christie, at least. He seems to be the one voice to being able to stand up for Trump. Um, do you guys want to move over to him now or do we have some more thoughts? On what, one more thought. 
Okay. I want to say one thing too. I'm just so excited about Chris Christie, man. I can't help it. Every, I know. Everything, all roads lead to Chris Christie. <laughs> <laughs> now, the main thing here, though, is that one thing I really think that is a very important fact to note is that it's still a long time away before the Iowa caucus. When that Iowa caucus comes out, that's going to be a big game changer in a lot of different things. All these other people that are your randos that are running like Asso Hutchinson and Bumgardner and people that really have zero chance to win anything, those guys will all eventually drop out. All of those other names in the hat are all people that are going to potentially eat away from that person that will be the actual anti-Trump candidate. So what will happen is when Iowa caucus happens, and especially if Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, or anybody else, Chris Christie, whoever is to beat Trump in the New Hampshire primary, if anybody else beats Trump in the New Hampshire primary, that's going to be the candidate that everybody else consolidates around. Plus with South Carolina, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are both running against each other, and they're both from South Carolina. Whoever wins that race, if either of them win, then they're going to be an important candidate. If Donald Trump wins New Hampshire, South Carolina, Iowa, and um, you know Florida, those four states, then I do think that Donald Trump will be the GOP candidate. But until that happens, it's a lot of ifs and maybes. And I do think that the debate, especially when that happen, is going to change the entire narrative. But for the time being, I just think that there's way too many candidates running. And for someone to actually catch that momentum and catch that boost that they need, they, some of these other people need to drop out. But I don't think that they all need to drop out in support of Trump. I just think they all need to drop out in favor of the anti-Trump candidate that they can think can beat Donald Trump. Yeah, and so many of them are going to drop out without having made any sort of splash at all. It's like, why bother running at that point? But oh well. With that, let's move on to Chris Christie. Pratik, what is the story? Okay, so the man who said Trump's name. During the CNN town hall, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie fearlessly spoke out about Trump. He emphasized that candidates shouldn't shy away from saying Trump's name if they want to prove that they're better than him. Christie didn't hold back, describing Trump as angry and as vengeful. He positioned himself as the leading critic in the 2024 Republican primary, unafraid to confront the frontrunner. Christie highlighted the damaging nature of the documents Trump is accused of retain, retaining unlawfully, which allegedly included plans for war with Iran and classified security briefings. He also criticized Trump's behavior as childish and said the onus is on Trump to provide evidence to prove that the election was stolen. Christie pointed out that Trump is a three-time loser who lost the House in 2018, the presidency in 2020, and barely won the House and managed to lose the Senate in what should have been an easy clean sweep in 2022. And if voters don't wake up, it will be a 2024 defeat as well. Trump needs to quit being a victim and blaming everyone else for being a loser and blame himself. In showcasing his own candidacy, Christie emphasized his accomplishments in New Jersey and his dedication to Republican values. He advocated for supporting Ukraine against Russia and countering China's influence while criticizing Trump's border policy and suggesting that National Guard deployment for immigration should be at the border. Christie said he'd raise the retirement age and cut Social Security so that everyone gets what they've been promised. He also wants all children in this country to have the best education, and he will make it his presidency's top priority to make it happen, as this is the biggest equalizer. 
Christie displayed a moderate stance on abortion, saying that his belief is to allow states to determine their abortion laws. He acknowledged the correlation between guns and mass shootings, saying that it stems heavily due to the thousands of non-registered weapons in circulation. But whether or not people have a necessity for assault weapons under the Second Amendment, they have the right to have them, and we need to protect that right. With a confident yet humble approach, Christie positioned himself as a potential contender to defeat Trump in 2024. Only time will tell if the GOP is prepared for someone who tells it like it is. So, Nick and Tyler, what are your thoughts? Telling it like it is is his slogan, so I wanted to throw it in there. Well, I'm glad to tell it like it is, too. Chris Christie doesn't have a chance in hell at winning the presidency, <laughs> but you know what? I'm glad that he actually went out there. I'm glad he actually spoke his mind, and I'm glad that he brought it to Trump. I mean, he's a former uh, attorney. He's a former prosecutor, and that very shows. He was able to prosecute the case against Trump pretty effectively, and he mentioned things that I didn't know. For example, uh, one of the things he said during that town hall was that Trump, when not only did he just say, no, I'm not going to return the documents, but he informed his own team to lie about Trump ever having them. So first mm. he said, no, I'm not going to return them. And then he said, what are you talking about? Like, we don't have anything. So like the entire thing, like, I didn't know that. I thought it was purely just, oh, Trump had the documents, didn't give it over. He literally instructed his team to lie and say that he didn't have them after already trying to not give them over. So is it, that public it's just a weird thing. I, I don't think it's widely known by people. I'd never heard but that, no. Like it, it was, so it was surprising to hear Chris Christie bring that up. I was like, oh, wow, I, I didn't know that. Um, so I think that was one positive thing that could potentially sway people's thinking on this, where the way Chris Christie talked about Trump, it really seemed like he knew him pretty well. And at the same time, like he, he kind of defended him because one thing you'll hear on the left is that, oh, well, Trump is corrupt. He just wants to sell these documents to a foreign government, and he, he just is all about dirty money. And Chris Christie said no. Like, Trump is a very simple guy. He just wants bragging rights. Like, he wants to pretend like he's still the president. He wants to have these important documents and show them off, and that's Trump's personality. It's not for any nefarious reason. Like, he's not trying to sell it to some authoritarian regime. It, it's just his personality. So in any case, I thought Chris Christie did really well. Um, unfortunately, I don't think he's going to win. I don't think he's going to come close. Um, but at the same time, just him on the debate stage, I think is probably going to be the first time that people would actually hear that piece of information about this um, turn of events with Trump and the documents. So I just think Chris Christie did a nice job. I just don't know if he can win. Tyler. Yeah, it's also refreshing that someone's not just a pure culture war candidate. I feel like there is a gap where if you're a moderate Republican, you don't like Trump. There aren't too many people that you have to pick from that aren't just super focused on like, let's say, transgender issues, these wedge issues that don't matter in the grand scheme of things as much. And I like that he's focusing on the issues that actually will affect people. Talking about raising the age of Social Security is kind of a big risk. That's your voter base that you're kind of you're talking to there. But he went out and said it. And I, you're, you're right. I as a politician, and Pratik had emphasized this before the show, as a person, he seems like a reasonable guy. He's actually a very eloquent speaker. I mean, you look at him, you're like, oh, maybe he's a bit of a mess, but that's not true. Like, he comes across as a, a decent guy. Does he have a chance? No. But him being on the debate stage changes it a lot. He is actually one of the biggest X factors in this election for that very fact. I don't see someone like DeSantis performing nearly as well as Chris Christie on this debate stage, for instance. So with all that said, I do think he is going to influence the race. I don't think he's going to end up winning, but I I'm glad he's here personally. Do you think he can take Trump out? I think that he's speaking very truthfully about Trump. When you were talking about the ego 
I, I think that makes sense. And I also think he kind of pointed towards incompetence. He's like, look, this guy has these documents. He's not trying to capitalize on the fact that he's these documents. He can't help himself. He literally cannot help himself. He needs it for his own ego's sake. I think that's an interesting approach to take on Trump. But we've seen so many people try so many different ways, and it's really hard to break into Trump's supporter base because they're so convinced that there is this deep conspiracy, especially on the Democrat side, and no one except for Trump can take them on. And if they can take down Trump, they can take down anyone. At least that's how I think many of his supporters are viewing the situation. Pratik, what do you think about Chris Christie? As so a I, think, I think Chris Christie has a lot of stuff that he's going to bring on the table. I remember when the, I, I literally listened to his whole CNN town hall. Like, I was actually fascinated by it. I'm like, this guy actually sounds like a genuine person. Like, he sounds like a genuine person that literally cares about the country and cares about what he's running for. Like, most of these people are all just in it for something. Like, Ron DeSantis still hasn't said Trump's name. Like, I don't really know what he's trying to accomplish by, like, trying to talk about the man who should not be named. Like, the thing about <laughs> like Chris Voldemort. Christie is, like, he he at least is honest. Like, he criticized all these people for, like, not saying his name. He's like, say his name. Say his name. Like, it's like the fact with Chris Christie, too, is he talked about specific elements and things that he had conversations that he's had with Trump in the past. Like he talked about whenever Trump won, he, he basically called Chris Christie on in a meeting and he was asking, so Chris, like, what do you think I can do to you know, make sure that I'm able to win the White House again in the next four years? And Chris Christie said to make it about the country. He's like, you didn't win because you, you were the better candidate. You lost because Hillary Clinton blew it. In order for you to win as a president, you need to care more about what the people want, what the country needs, and not make it all about yourself. And he is like, the biggest problem with Trump is that everything is about him. He's like, he is the numero uno. Like, no one else matters. All of his scandals, all his controversies, everything that he does, it's always about him. He's like, when it comes to presidency, this is the problem with Donald Trump. And then he talked about personal issues that he had with Trump. Like, he's, he basically helped out Trump in a lot of his debate prep up into the election. And then after, I mean, up into the next election, he was one of his main debate prep people. So I think that's another good thing about quality about Christie is that he's teaching Trump how to speak on stage. So like, you know, maybe that is a good X factor. I still remember how well he did in the 2016 primaries. So in terms of the debate stage. So I think when it deals with this stuff, he talked about like how Trump and him and all these other people were like, you know, gathering in a room together to prepare for the um, debate. And then they all got COVID. And then whenever he, um, Christie was on his like in the hospital, Trump called him just to make sure that Christie didn't say that he gave him COVID. And then, like, apparently, he was telling other people that Christie gave everybody COVID. Like, little <laughs> petty things. This is the thing about Trump. is like, with Christie, wow. he sounds like a genuine, honest, regular person. He doesn't sound like somebody that's going to make it about the world on, like, whatever he's, like, wants to accomplish tasks. He's going to make it about just doing the task and not making a big deal out of it. With Trump, everything is about him. He wants recognition. He wants to be known as like, oh, this is what I did. I am the Trump. With Chris Christie, I think that's a flavor that we're forgetting. And I think the main thing about Chris Christie is, is that he also is a very genuine candidate. 
He is a very good speaker. He's a better speaker than half of these other people on the stage. You listen to him talk, he knows his issues. You ask him questions, he's going to give you an honest, genuine answer. He's not going to be robotic Rubio. He's not going to sound like, you know, he's not going to have the same talking lines as Trump. And he's not going to make all these hand gestures. He's going to make it about his answer to the actual question. So I think these kind of things is what I'd like about Christie. But as you guys said, I don't think he can win. But I do think it's important that we have somebody like this in the race that is able to at least shake off Trump. If anything, Chris Christie is the biggest assist man on the debate stage because he's willing to say his name. He can take out any of the... He might take out other people with him. But at the same time, the focus is going to be that he's going to be a big X factor that is going to impact another candidate to potentially beat Trump. But I don't think he himself has the firepower in him, plus the fact that we still all remember when he hugged Obama, that he can beat Trump. But I think he's important. Well, with the firepower analogy, I feel like Chris Christie coming into this race, he's going to be like a kamikaze pilot, okay? If he takes down Trump, he's going to take himself out as well. You know, if you go (laughs) against the cult leader, you are going to be dead to the members that really love that person. So even if he takes Trump out of the race, it's not like, oh, suddenly he's number one. Then someone else is going to swoop into number one. And Pratik, I I thought it was really good that you sort of shared some of the, the history between the two of them and how last time... Christie, actually, in both the last elections in 2016, after Christie dropped out, he helped Trump. And then in 2020, Christie also helped Trump. And so I think it's really interesting that Christie both times ended up helping Trump. But this time, it's very clear that the two are going to be enemies. And so I think that's what's different. Because I think a lot of people would just say, well, Christie ran in 2016, and he lost to Trump. Trump beat everyone. So why is this different? And I think This is why it's different, because Christie never actually went against and after Donald Trump in 2016. And this time, that seems like it's his sole purpose and what he's going to do. Yeah. And and it's interesting because he actually has that insider information on Trump. Now, how credible uh, Trump's base is going to see that information, I don't know. I don't think they'll be too impacted by it. I think Chris Christie's a way better politician, but people don't necessarily vote for the best politician. We've talked about this time and time again. And even though it's all about me, all about me, some people like that strong leader. They see it as strong leadership where this guy is taking control. And when maybe the world's a little more chaotic than it was before, you know, that that's the guy you're going to lean on. And the funny thing is, as much as Trump throws people under the bus, he's going to 100% turn around if Chris Christie attacks him on stage and say, Chris, like, Chris, Look at all I've done for you. And now you do this to me. He's going to act like Chris Christie's betrayed him in some fundamental way when really it's been Trump throwing him under a bus the entire time. So <laughs> Yeah, so I hope Chris Christie has some like juicy insider info and on stage can completely embarrass Trump, make him stutter, make him not know what to say. My favorite thing about Chris Christie is he called him a three-time loser. Like, I think some things like that sticks, right? Problem with Chris Christie's situation. It took me so long to find the full town hall on YouTube. Like, that's how impactful Chris Christie is right now. Nobody really cares about him. He did just announce, though, to be fair. That's true. But I found Pence's and Haley's stuff on YouTube. It took me a while to find his. But see, at the same time... Like, I think that's the best benefit that Chris Christie brings is that he has that insider information, as you guys said, but at the same time, he doesn't care. Like, he talked about, like, in 2020, he basically said, Charles Trump is, is a childish sore loser. He lost, and the reason why he made this a whole big scandal about everything is because he just can't take the fact that he lost. 
Like, he's just one of those people that is a sore loser that just can't get behind the fact that he lost and he likes to blame everybody else for his losses. I think the fact that somebody said that is pretty refreshing. Whether or not you believe that about Trump or don't believe that about Trump, that doesn't matter. The fact is that somebody said it. And I think whenever somebody says that, at least that gives him some form of credibility. I'd rather have him than Bumgardner. I don't know anything about Bumgardner, but I feel like the guy's a bum. He hasn't said anything yet. With Chris Christie, at least he said that much. So we'll move on to DeSantis now. Well, um, so we talk about Trump. We talk about Christie, right? And Christie is the one saying Trump's name. The reason why Ron DeSantis isn't getting anywhere is he isn't saying Trump's name. So Literally Nick, the opposite of Chris about... Christie. <laughs> exactly. So, Nick, what are your, th- what's your thoughts on Ron DeSantis? An Italian from the north and an Italian from, a, from the south. Who are you going to pick, America? <laughs> so the woke vine virus strikes back is the, the title of this story. And basically, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has taken his anti-woke propaganda machine to Nevada this week, appealing to the home of Sin City in Las Vegas. So according to a recent Harvard Caps poll, Trump maintains a strong lead at 59%, while DeSantis trails at 14%, so a distant second. Since announcing his run for president, DeSantis has faced a tough battle against Trump, with polls consistently showing him at a disadvantage right now. State-level polls also highlight this trend, so in Iowa one of the first states that's going to be voting in the primary, Trump is leading DeSantis by 15 points, while in Nevada, he maintains a staggering lead of over 30%. Similarly, in New Hampshire, another early voting state, Trump has his lead extended by five points recently, up to 44%, leaving DeSantis at a mere 12%. So the disparity continues in California as well. Trump is at 53, DeSantis at 19. And no matter where you look, pretty much, Trump has a massive lead over DeSantis in the GOP primary, polling in Maryland, North Carolina, Wisconsin, all these states. And even though Trump has been smeared by these scandals, his polling has seen a significant boost. Observers are pondering whether Trump's scandals have derailed DeSantis or if the woke mind virus has infected his campaign too. Pratik and Tyler, what do we think about the polls and what the numbers actually tell us? The numbers have been consistent and very clear. Ron DeSantis can't say Trump's name He won't say anything about the indictment. He'll allude to there being injustice in the justice system, but wouldn't say anything about him. How are you going to beat Trump without taking part of his fan base? And how are you going to take part of his fan base without criticizing Trump? You can't. So he's kind of a useless candidate. Everyone had a lot of high hopes for him. He was making waves on the national stage, doing a lot of things on the culture war front. But apart from that, he does not seem to be the kind of person that can be an attack dog. And that's the kind of person you need to take down Trump. So right now, it's not looking good. He, he might get some votes, but at the end of the day, he's so far behind at this point. Do we see him really getting that much of a, a, a boost from these debates? Because personally, I don't think so at all. I don't know how he's going to perform in these debates, but I cannot see him out bullying Trump. And that's what it's going to take. So it's not looking good for him. I think if this was a weird, different election where Trump wasn't involved in the race, I think Ron DeSantis would have a pretty good chance. But because this election involves Donald Trump, I don't think he has any chance. And the fact that he's in the race is eating away from other people from having a chance. And I think Ron DeSantis, I mean, even though he is the solid, you know, second number that everybody thinks of right now. And they're like, oh, everybody knows who Ron DeSantis is. We don't know who Chris Christie is. We don't know who Nikki Haley is. We don't know who Tim Scott is. Everybody hates Mike Pence. But we all know Ron DeSantis. 
But I think with Ron DeSantis, the biggest issue that he has is what Tyler exactly said. And the other problem with Ron DeSantis is he doesn't have any opinions on anything. The guy is a pretty boring dude. Like, all he knows about is this woke stuff. So all he talks about is this woke stuff. He doesn't talk about anything else as he's done. I mean, he's one of the most, like, he basically landslided his Florida governorship election. But he doesn't talk about anything he's done in Florida. All he talks about is his woke stuff. He wants to create a culture war, and he wants to, like, fight against his movement, and he wants to take this fight to Disney. And all these other candidates, ironically, are heavily criticizing uh, heavily criticizing Ron DeSantis on this. They're like, he's wasting taxpayer money on Disney. Disney, if anything, a lot of these Republicans that were polled in this other poll that I saw, like, they saw, like, there's a lot more Republicans that are in favor of Disney than Ron DeSantis. Like, I'm like, dude, Ron DeSantis is like, he just needs to get his priorities straight. The guy can probably actually have a chance of winning if he knew and talked about different things. He doesn't have any opinions on foreign policy. He has zero opinions on anything else going on. Like, all he knows about is the death penalty and this woke stuff. Like, he doesn't have any and actual shipping opinions. migrants to Martha's yeah. Vineyard. <laughs> yeah, and, and shipping the migrants. And he also, like, has his... Oh, he's famous for being anti-gay. Which, that doesn't necessarily help anybody either. Because a lot of Republicans, not the people that you're electing, but at least the regular voter base, is not that anti-gay people. Like, it doesn't, we, there might be a lot of Republicans that are anti this whole transgender movement and trying to make sure that transgender people get to play in sports and they don't want, like, you know, kids having transgender surgeries. That's granted. But there's not that many gay people, the anti-gay people in the country. So, like, with the Ron DeSantis situation, like, he's kind of, like, branded himself in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily help his cause. Even then, he's still the best socially conservative candidate that there is in the race, but that doesn't mean that he can beat Donald Trump. It just means that he's the best socially conservative candidate in the race. I just have to say, so looking at Ron DeSantis' website, you know, every political... Party, you'll have donations, right? If you go on Bernie's website when he used to be running, if you go on Trump's website, if you go on Nikki, if you go on anyone's website, you know, you will see donate here and it'll have big buttons for you to press. And it's a, it's a nice round rounded number, right? There's no decimals. It's just like donate $25, donate 10, donate five, donate a hundred, whatever you want to donate. There's nice intervals. Ron DeSantis in listing the donations on his website in the live feed, it almost looks fake. Someone is donating $21.07, another person $58.95, All right, that's kind of funny. $21.07. Like, some of this stuff doesn't look real. Like, it, I, I don't know. So in any well, case... Well, to, to you, I, I don't know if most people think like that, but you're absolutely right. That does sound junky. And people keep donating $20.24. It actually keeps coming up in the thing. So I wonder if they prompt them to do that. But in any case, um, that's, that's just that. But I wanted to say... Pratik, you said, what is DeSantis going to win on? And I would echo that. Like, he can't talk about immigration. Trump hasn't beat on that. That's Trump's entire identity from when he ran in 2016 is tough on immigration. That's what he's going to run on again. DeSantis doesn't have him there, even though, like Tyler mentioned, he, he put migrants up in Martha's Vineyard. And if Trump wasn't running, I think that would give him some credence. But Trump is running. So who cares? So that's number one. Another thing, tough on crime. He's not going to win there. Foreign policy. Not going to win there. The economy, not going to win there. Even though, even though Trump added 25% of the U.S. federal deficit. So that's pretty bad. 
someone could hit him on that and do a decent job. But at the same time, Trump's going to say, that wasn't me. I'm a businessman. I'm here to make jobs. Like, he can, he can always fall back on that, okay? Even though his record, a little shaky. So DeSantis, and, and to be fair, you could clearly say that was COVID. That wasn't Trump. That was COVID. You know, had nothing to do with him. It was just very unfortunate. And that's what he would probably say. But at the same time, it's the number's still there. In politics, people like to play fast and loose with facts, and you can still say that. You can still claim that. So I just don't think that DeSantis really beats him on anything except for the woke stuff. That's why he's leaning into it so much. That's what actually gets clicks and gets people interested in your platform is taking a stand on cultural issues, specifically, for example, transgender people in sports, schools, bathrooms, what have you. Like That has become a major cultural flashpoint over the past couple of years. And DeSantis, more so than Trump, has really made a name for himself on these different social issues. So I get what you're saying, Pratik, that he needs to go outside of that and that he actually has to, you know, do something else. But at the same time, like, that is his differentiator. Like, everyone needs one. And it seems like he's he's leaned into that the most. He spent the most time developing that identity. And I think when he runs, he's not going to lean into his military background. That's just a checkbox. He's not going to lead into his religious um, convictions. That's just a checkbox. Because, like, Trump is not a religious man. Trump does not appeal to evangelical voters as a human being. But at the same time, he <laughs> he represents them. Like, he actually has their interests in mind because he wants to be loved by them. And therefore, he espouses a bunch of evangelical stuff. He wants stuff, to be loved by God. Which, Come on, man. Which, like, <laughs> Trump himself, he like, is, Jesus. Is, he, is he the most moral person? Eh, probably not. But, you know, in any case, so I just wanted to sort of make the case that DeSantis doesn't win on anything else aside from cultural issues. And I think that's why he needs to keep pushing them because otherwise I think he's, what else does he have to offer? Well, well he does, but at the same time, and this is a question I'm going to pose to you guys is like, is that wokeism that fight against that? Do enough people care? Like online, people certainly care. It's what gets people clicks. That's what's in the cultural zeitgeist. But at the same time, those 80% of people that are somewhat apolitical, maybe they have one or two issues they care about. Maybe all of that is irrelevant. And that's why he's unable to make like any headway on that front. Do you think that could be the case? Or is it because it is powerful, but he, he's just so um, one-dimensional and not well-rounded that because of that, he doesn't stand a chance? It's the latter is he's so one-dimensional that he only talks about this. If he talked about other things and then he sprinkled in a little bit of his anti-woke stuff, it'd be all right. But all he talks about is the anti-woke stuff. And there's only so much you could talk about the same movement. It's not like immigration. Like, this is an issue that is like, always existed. Like, there's always going to be something new people are going to be woke about. Half the people in our country that vote Republican don't know really what woke means. Like, this is just, like, in those, like, you know, philosophical-type issues. Like, having philosophical-type issues is great, but philosophical-type issues don't win you elections. They, I mean, they, they might win you a governorship, but they don't win you a presidential election. But, Pratik, it's easy to understand. If you don't That's like true. whenever you hear about woke ideology and woke people and whatever, and someone is the anti-woke candidate, you would think, oh, I like this person. They're doing a good job. But see, the problem is Trump's in the race. Even if Trump is not the most woke guy, I mean, Trump is one of the biggest diehard supporters of Disney. 
I mean, talk about Disney and all this woke stuff. Trump is like, he's been endorsed by Disney. He said a lot of good things about Disney. He still hasn't criticized Disney. And he actually went anti Ron DeSantis for being against Disney. So I think all of that stuff, like, it does fall into the same brand because Donald Trump will say that the election was stolen from him. And the people that are going to be the most excited about that stuff are the people that are in the anti-woke crowd. Like, that's his people. The people that care about this stuff, the people that are like, you know, adamant and passionate about these issues, they see Donald Trump as their ring icon. Like Ron DeSantis may be the distant future leader. He may be like the next in line prophet, but Donald Trump is the guy that they think of. Even if Donald Trump is not really your most woke candidate, anti-woke candidate. Like the thing or is, viable candidate, quite frankly. That. Yeah. He just wins that group without doing anything. It's like how Donald Trump wins the business people without doing anything. All these other people have to try to sell to try to win these business Republicans. The business Republicans are already going to vote for Donald Trump because he's a business person. Well, he doesn't have to has do done anything to accomplish that. On, on anti-woke. You remember 2016 as well as I do where Trump That's railed fair. against you know, cancel culture. He's like, you know, he, his entire identity was going against political correctness from the very that's start. Fair. And that's the same idea as being anti-woke. Yeah, but so. does DeSantis do it better than Trump? No, I think that's the key. It's like Trump has all these supporters. Is he better at being anti-woke than Trump? I don't think so. Trump could walk out on the stage and say, I'm a woman, call me she, her. And he would still win the, win the anti-woke vote, you know, so... <laughs> Dude, Trump once put out, um, this is, I think, while he was still back on Twitter, or maybe this was Instagram, where he said that he was going to draft the best female basketball team of all time. And it was and all basically like LeBron said James. If only they could get LeBron James to transition to being a woman, that his team wouldn't <laughs> dominate anyone else. Look, he's funny. And, like, that's not even a novel joke, but he's, he's a funny guy at the end of the day, and he's a bully for sure. But that stuff, unfortunately, wins, especially when he's on TV. Trump's the master of TV. We're going to see a lot of how this plays out on the debate stage you guys ready to move on to the next story yes let's do it move on let's do it take us so, to suarez tyler to suarez and beyond we have miami mayor francis suarez the only hispanic candidate declared his candidacy for the republican presidential nomination on good morning america when questioned about trump's behavior and the charges suarez dodged claiming he lacked details that's not a good look when you lack details and you're announcing your presidency. Anyway, when reminding, uh, reminded he was running against Trump, he countered, that's where you're wrong. I'm running against Joe Biden's America. In America, where the poor get poorer, where America weakens, and where China becomes the sole superpower. So we got Suarez entering the race. It, to me, this just seems like a guy who's trying to get his name out there. Um, he really has nothing to go off at this point. It's the beginning of his presidential political career, if you can call it that. So what are you guys' thoughts on him entering the race? Why does everybody from Florida want to become president? <laughs> I don't know, Something man. in the water. They got big dreams, know. man. But I just wanted to say, so him claiming that he lacked details, running as a mayor, you need to be connected to what's going on in your city or your town. Pete Buttigieg was hit over and over again about his record in the town that he was the mayor of for South Bend, Indiana. I'm sure it's a small city, whatever. In any case, this guy, by saying that he doesn't know the details of what's going on with Trump, where was Trump arraigned? In Miami. What is this guy the mayor of? Miami. How does he not know the details? Like, I... It's just a stupid thing to say. So I, I know that someone like most people are not going to be as nitpicky about this as I am. 
But at the same time, like if you were the mayor of the city and claimed to know, oh man, I'm doing such a good job going on here. I'm responsible for Miami's success, even though it's just a bunch of rich people who want to party it up and live in these like huge <laughs> skyscrapers. It's like, do you really have to do that much? Miami is seen as like a really like cool and fun place to live. And I don't think that's because of a recent mayor. But maybe he's done good things. Who knows? You never know. Maybe he's out there at the nightclubs every single night slinging shots to people, making it a good time. But ultimately, I think dodging on this, again, it's one of those things where, like, if you really want to make a splash, like, why are you running as a long shot candidate and not even going to say what you think about the most basic question that everyone else has been asked? So this is like a typical politician dodge. In a, in a race where you can't have a political <laughs> politician dodge if you want to have any chance of winning. You got to swing the bat if you want to hit a home run. Well, speaking of um, Suarez, so with Suarez, I just think that he's just one of the many candidates from Florida. Like, they got they had Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and Trump in the past. This year, they got DeSantis, Trump, and Suarez. And I just think when it deals with these primary candidates from a particular state, all the other candidates will all die out if Trump wins that state. Like, this is their state, right? If you don't win your state, you're not going to win anything else. So all these people are there is just to see who wins Florida. Whenever, whoever wins Florida, which I heavily doubt is going to be Suarez between the three-man race of Suarez, DeSantis, and Trump, then, I mean, that's going to be the big question mark. If DeSantis ends up losing Florida itself, he's also going to drop out of the race because that's his whole claim to fame is done. So I think this is all about Florida. The last election was also about Florida. It was between Rubio, Jeb Bush, and Trump in Florida. Rubio and Jeb Bush both lost to Trump. Both their candidates basically fell through the water. Nobody cared about their races anymore, and Donald Trump won. So all this stuff is going to come down to Florida. I just think there's something special about Florida. And that's why everybody from Florida wants to become president. But guess what? You know, Trump's known for draining the swamp. And he's going to do it again here. All those Florida politicians got to drain him out. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of, um, let's talk about Powell. So, you know, we talked about draining the swamp. Powell is going to keep the same interest rate, which is a good thing. So this is a pretty quick story. We don't really need to um, debate about this. is just an update. This week, the Federal Reserve decided to maintain interest rates, leaving the benchmark federal funds rate unchanged between 5% and 5.25%. So happy to see that. That means the economy is getting better and things are stabilizing. So now let's go on to a different country where things are very unstable, China. Tell, yeah. tell us about them. It is important, though. I mean, stopping runaway inflation, hopefully that's an indicator of that. We'll see how the markets move. That'll tell us where people are thinking on that. But yeah, moving abroad, we got Blinken's Beijing Adventures. So U.S. Secretary of State Blinken headed to Beijing on a big diplomatic mission hoping to soothe U.S.-China tensions that he took over the world stage. He had fruitful discussions with Foreign Minister Quinn Gong and covered... Uh, covering worries and possible collaborations. He stressed America's dedication to its principles and partnering with allies for a fair and orderly planet. Despite low hopes, this is a major milestone in dialogue between our nations. As everyone know, knows, we've had strained relations with China over the past few years. Then you have Taiwan, and that just adds to it the South China Sea and all of that. So what are you guys' thoughts on this visit? Is it impactful? Well, I think it's an important visit because this is the one that was delayed months ago. We talked about it on the show with the Chinese spy balloon that was caught over the United States. Blinken canceled his upcoming trip to China and has delayed it until now. So this is what that meeting was. And I think 
he's in a tough spot, right? On the one hand, you need to balance the fact that the United States and China are so interlinked economically that you still need a, a good partnership. But at the same time, like since 2016, really, we've seen that we're very adversarial, adversarial with them and not just about things in Taiwan. It's also about economic nationalism. And that is an incredibly powerful force, especially when people feel like they are not earning enough money to really do well and thrive to the same you know, extent that their parents were, their grandparents. You know, you hear about how things used to be so much better back when manufacturing was really huge in this country. And even though you could say globalization has changed a lot of things, and we're not dealing with the same place and time that we were in America in the 1950s and 60s, totally different world this day, you can still sort of have this nostalgia around it and say, look, you know, all these manufacturing jobs moved to China. And that's why people are struggling right now. It's because of the Chinese. Let's blame them. So it's it's a difficult thing to kind of straddle that, plus the very real concerns of Chinese cybersecurity threats, Chinese espionage, like China stealing all of these intellectual and trade secrets from the United States for years and years and years, and from many other countries as well. Like China so much wants to be seen as this global partner for many countries, seen as a positive place. And yet it's sort of treated as a pariah in the United States on so many different issues. So Blinken has a tough job going over there. And, you know, it's it's going to be like any other meeting where you're just trying to toe the line. On the one hand, you sort of have to chastise them to say, don't you guys shouldn't be sending spy balloons over to us. Um, That's not cool. But at the same time, you know, you can only go so far. You know, no one wants a war with China. And right now it's this weird waiting game where Everyone's trying to see what is China going to do about Taiwan. And part of that, people think, is what happens in Ukraine. Russia is doing terribly in Ukraine. And if they had taken it over very quickly, the idea was, supposedly, that China was going to see that as a green light, where if the United States did nothing for Ukraine, why would we do anything for Taiwan? It's a very different scenario, of course. But just given how things have gone in Ukraine and how much Russia is hurting right now, I think it sort of delayed a little bit what's going on in the South China Sea. Although, to be fair, you know, end of the day, China, like, here's here's my tinfoil hat thing, right? If China really is going to invade Taiwan soon, I think they would, I think it's going to happen purely because of demographics. Like in China right now, you have more men than women. These men are not going to, you know, we don't have a reverse society where multiple men marry the same woman. So it's like, what what happens with all these men who are not going to have any sort of partners and who, you know, what, what are they going to do? It's like, well, you have an excess of, you know, young men. Do what you always do in these countries. Send them to war. And, you know, maybe maybe that's a little ridiculous of an idea. But at the same time, like China so much in its own rhetoric has been teaching children for a long time that Taiwan is part of mainland China always should have been and all this debate around that whatever you go back to Chiang Kai-shek you go back to the Polynesian sort of natives who were in Taiwan before Chiang Kai-shek moved over with the nationalists it's a whole big messy mosaic but all that is to say Trump and Biden are not different on China and in the election 
it's not going to make a difference. Both sides, Democrats and Republicans, neither one can claim the other of being cozy Actually, with I, China. I disagree. And go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I think Trump absolutely gets the advantage. I think he's at least seen as the one that's the most anti-China, the one that can be hard against China. Because a lot of this Chinese conversation, of course, it's been an issue for a long time, but it was brought about by Trump. It was brought about by Trump's messaging saying, we have this unfair trade relations. I'm absolutely going to end that as soon as possible. And it's going to be, a, it, it, it's black and white to me. We can't have this continue going on. So I think Trump actually does get a big boost from that. So let's say China does invade Taiwan or something. I think Trump gains from that ultimately. That's fair. But at the same time, I don't know if reality is supported by that. So for example, like Trump never said that the United States would defend Taiwan if China invaded. Never said it. That's been long been precedent. But it had by been implied by every president before him up until Biden, who actually said it. Yeah, no, I'm saying, sure, it's implied, but it's never been said. And I'm saying Biden actually said it. So if anything, Biden seems more committed to our partners in Southeast Asia than Trump. But you're absolutely right. When it comes to economic trade wars, Trump is seen as stronger. And you're right that he would have the leg up there. Well, speaking of, let's talk about affirmative action. So, Nick, tell us more about affirmative action being on life support. All right, so the Supreme Court is considering cases that could dismantle affirmative action and Biden's student loan cancellation plan, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Um, critics argue that these efforts reflect a backlash against racial progress in higher education, and the rulings could have political consequences for young voters of color and affect racial disparities in access to education. The court is expected to rule soon by the end of June. Deacon Tyler, what do you think about this? So one thing about affirmative action, it impacts a lot of people that are my race. So a lot of Asians tend to perform better in schools and tend to be the ones that are the ones that are getting the most impacted by any of these affirmative action. Decisions. Negatively impacted. Yeah. Negatively impacted because in general, on, on average, Asians tend to perform better in school and tend to have higher test scores. So what you've seen in a lot of these schools, especially these cases that are going on, especially with UC Berkeley right now, that you have a lot of East Asians, South Asians, you know, all these different Asian groups that are the ones that are going to be heavily impacted because we're the ones that make up the most, you know, population in some of these big schools. It's ironic because some of these schools that I've been to, like I went to school at American University that spells itself as the bastion of diversity, where there was like, you know, 90% of the people are white. But then you have other schools that are the ones that are actually being looked at for affirmative action that actually are much more diverse. Ironically, there's less African-American people. I get that argument. But there's still a lot of Hispanic people and there's still a lot of Asian people inside of these schools. So I think the aspect of that, we have to analyze a little bit more because they talk about everything being like affirmative action, being bad and everything. But most of the time, you just have to allow like the students with the best scores and the best grades to be the ones that are taking the, you know, they're the ones being selected. You need to have things like a blind selection system where maybe you're not looking at a resume's name and you're just looking at actual credentials. It's been passed around in the past. But the problem was also, and it always will exist, I don't know the answer to this, is that there's certain groups in our community that are, you know, are disproportionately um, disenfranchised. And some of that stuff leads to them not having the same level of quality of education as others. And sometimes it's due with income status, sometimes it's due with um, where they live. And if like, you know, especially it impacts a lot of African Americans and Hispanic students in particular, based on what communities that they come from. But at the same time, like that's the issue that has always existed. And I don't really see affirmative action ever going away, even 
even though no one can ever say that, you know, we have affirmative action. Because all the school is trying to prevent any policies showing that there's affirmative action policies. But everyone's mom, dad, and sister knows that affirmative poli- affirmative action exists. Like, if it's weird if somebody's like, oh man, AA doesn't exist. It exists, but no one's ever willing to say it because the Supreme Court has said that it's illegal time and time again. And I think it's the same thing is going to happen here. So... Yeah, Nick, but I, so my, for me, I think the biggest discrepancy is the income one because let's say you live whether you're yeah. black, white, if you live in a low income neighborhood, um, you're just going to get less school funding, which is probably going to lead to less education rates, which leads That's to true. less college acceptances. So if we're going to have um, s- s- this process, this affirmative action, I would just like to see it more based on income levels. To me, that makes more sense. I don't know if we have to do away with it altogether. I don't think it should be 100% purely meritocratic, which is, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, that's what they do. In China, for instance, that's what they do. Whoever gets the highest test scores goes to the best schools, and that's all it is. But I think there is some room that we need to account for where if there's just not as much funding at certain schools, it doesn't necessarily mean these kids aren't very bright at all. And maybe it's actually a loss for us to not capitalize on the fact that there could be some golden eggs, let's say, coming from those communities that we're just ignoring. So that, you know, that's kind of my faux high level solution, but it's a very complex issue and obviously a very charged issue. Anything having to do with race, obviously, is going to be very charged. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be different depending on the states, right? Um, For example, if you look at a state like North Carolina, where you have the UNC system, the University of North Carolina, and there's different locations, right? If you look at Chapel Hill, which is, I think, what most people outside of North Carolina would just through basketball, like through basketball, you would think of UNC Chapel Hill. And UNC Chapel Hill didn't allow African-American students to enroll up until I think it was the 60s. Like that, that wasn't that long ago. So I think there are certain states where if African-American students were prohibitively prohibited like explicitly excluded from even being a part of the university system and let's be real like this is a state university system state university systems are supposed to be affordable they're supposed to be accessible and if you want a really good education like look at the uc system in california the uc schools have a great reputation look at the university of michigan great reputation look at the unc schools they have really good reputations and so like I think by historically denying access to those institutions or just enrollment in those institutions, I, I at least would, I don't know, I would at least think that even if affirmative action is done a little differently on the federal level, that on a state-by-state basis, I think a state like North Carolina should probably approach it a little bit differently than, say, uh, California, where the states just have different histories and they've had different policies. So. I just think that would make sense. Shots but. fired at the South. Yeah, look, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, like, what else to say. I'm not There's coming after the Utah Texas here. System. Like, Come like on. what are you we going to uh, All right. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Texas is seen as having good schools. But, no, the reason I picked those, also, like, no, I no mean, one I knows about the why. University of Utah system. Like, no one's out there. Like, you know what I want to do? I want to go to the University of Nebraska. Like, that's where I want to go. Like, no one is hey, saying that. don't be putting down University of Nebraska. What the hell? <laughs> what are they? The Cornhuskers? I don't even know what they do. But in any case, all I was trying to say is that it obviously, like Tyler said, race is a very thorny issue. There are no easy answers to any of this. Um, and it's going to take some time to figure it all out, as we've clearly seen. Like, it's going to continue to evolve, you know, 200 years from now. I hope that this 
wouldn't have to be a conversation, right? You would you would expect that like the more time goes on, mm. the less that this stuff actually matters, which makes total sense. Um, but again, like I think it really should be a state by state basis. I'm not sure that you know some sort of federal changes in policy. And that's, that's again, another thorny issue where Congress is never going to vote on something like this, right? Who would even sponsor a bill like this? I don't even know why you would have the yeah. motivation to do that. It would just never look good for whoever sponsors a bill. But the Supreme Court is ultimately where it's going to be decided. And just like Roe v. Wade, it's going to be something that's very charged, very much on the national you know, front. But ultimately... You know, I, I think it kind of depends, which is not a satisfying answer. You know what else was on the national front recently? So we got topless at the White House. On June 10th, the White House held the largest Pride event in history, inviting LGBTQ plus community members to the South Lawn. During the festivities, trans activist Rose Montoya caused controversy by revealing her breasts at the Pride Parade party after taking photos with Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden. Montoya later shared a video Instagram and TikTok recapping the White House picnic. In the video, she proclaimed trans rights are human rights while shaking Biden's hand shortly after she exposed her chest on the South Lawn, prompting someone to shout, are we topless at the White House? Montoya then walked around covering her breasts with her hands before shaking them in front of the White House. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I have to laugh reading that. Uh, in response, White House Press Secretary Curry, uh, Karen Kareen, Jean Pierre said the behavior was simply unacceptable. She said people seen engaging in inappropriate behavior won't be invited back. Urgh. Montoya said in response, I had zero intention of trying to be vulgar or be profane in any way. I was simply living in joy, living my truth and existing in my body. Happy pride, free the nipple. So we have a very interesting story here. It's actually legal to actually be topless in D.C., but it's against, I guess, precedent i don't know if that's the word here uh to literally go topless on the white house and people are very angry joe biden and this is during pride month where he was very he was very much promoting it and all their messaging they had pride flags actually came out and denounced this event which politically actually means something i mean for someone that's probably been the most pride let's say friendly administration to come out and actually go against this kind of action is a bit interesting but overall a, a bit of a funnier story but what are your guys thoughts on this well, I think it's the most um, gender affirming thing where um, I believe she was born a man, transitioned, and in, in a way, like this is the most affirming thing where, or gender affirming thing where if she was still a man, you know, just lift, taking your shirt off, it would just be like, oh, don't do that, whatever. But now it's like, oh my God, bearing your breasts as a woman, this is ridiculous. We've got to throw you out of here. And to be fair, to be totally fair, um, doing this at the White House, wrong place, wrong time. Like, you know, there were also th children around. That's the one like, issue. They're basically saying they're linking it to like the Republicans or some conservatives are linking mm -hmm. it to like grooming and that kind of thing. So, but apart from yeah. that, it seemed a little harmless. But I don't know. Yeah, I, man, I well, I don't, I don't know so much about grooming, Tyler. I, I was gonna say if you think of like any young children at the beach. I guess I can only talk about boys because as a young boy, it's like if you're on the beach and someone has their boobs out, you'd be like, oh, my God, look at those. Like it, it wouldn't be like, this. like it wouldn't be like, oh, my God, they're grooming me. It's just like, oh, my goodness, look at those jugs. So in any case, I really do think that, you know, I don't see why this is such a bad thing. But all that is to say, like, I definitely agree that if you're visiting the White House, like this is seen as something that very much is a privilege, something that you should at least try to class it up a bit. 
And, you know, we can all argue about, you know, social norms of whether or not it's okay for men to be shirtless and women not to be shirtless. That's a totally different conversation. But here, when you're at the White House, you just don't do stuff. But you're like also this. representing those that trans group, exactly. right? Like, and it, yeah. even if, like you're saying, the social side, whatever, we could debate whether it should even be a thing or anyone should care. But at the same time, you're literally representing a group that is kind of under fire. And, you know, to be on your best behavior is... Probably, you know, the best incentive for you for the progress you're looking for. But I know, Pratik, you have some thoughts here. Yes, my, my only thoughts is that if this is a Republican presidency and this stuff happened, I wonder what the conversation would have been. But because this is a Democrat presidency, I'm actually surprised that they were very anti this. But it's a good thing. I'm happy. I mean, it makes me feel like at least there's some norms and some traditions that we still value. You can't just be naked in the White House. Like, I mean, you, you have to have some policies and procedures there to prevent people from engaging in inappropriate behavior. I think it's a good thing. But at the same time, like, you know, it is what it is. Like, they, these are the people that are all hyped about. We need to create, you know, we need to allow there to be freedom and rights. And we need to allow them people to just be free and doing whatever they want. Well, that's what they did. I don't really think anything's a problem with this. And I want to say they because she goes by she slash they. So let's try oh, to Oh, thank you, respect. Pratik. There we go. Look at that. There you yes. go. Look at that so inclusivity. We're, we're very supportive on the podcast of all Why don't we get apparently. to Biden being inclusive as well? Yeah. Of all their other cultures. Yeah. So I'm sure many of you have heard, but God save the queen, man. So President Biden had the crowd rolling with laughter during his gun control speech in Connecticut. Out of nowhere, he shouted, God save the queen, man, while talking about the auto theft liability. Then, in a hilarious moment of confusion, he looked around, unsure of where to exit the stage. This is such a common occurrence, it is, again, very laughable. I mean, who knew the British and car theft had anything to do with gun control? Only Biden. And let's not forget, with Queen Elizabeth's death, it's now King Charles III. That's our president for you always keeping everyone on their toes while channeling his inner British vibes. Look, he still thinks that there's a British monarchy controlling America. He hasn't quite gotten to the revolution yet. He's been alive for a few hundred years, and that's okay. You know, I understand. So what are you guys' thoughts on this Biden gaffe of the week? So Nick was happy that I put in the last sentence, the inner British vibes. It took me a while to write this story. But it was a pretty funny story. I think Biden is a weird guy, but I think that's the best thing about him. Dude's a, dude's a dude, man. He's one of those people that's going to go up on stage and do the most ridiculous, stupid thing that you would ever think of. And people find that to be normal. It's because, almost endearing, you know? Yeah. It's like, aw, Biden doesn't personable. know where he is. See, I think that's the thing I always talk about, though. This is why there's only two idiots in the race against Biden. The crazy crystal lady and the and the Kennedy that uh, is the most uninspiring Kennedy of all time. This is why. Because Biden falls on stage. He makes up oceans. He doesn't know where he is. Like, he thinks when he's in Vermont that he's in Massachusetts. He's campaigning in one place. And he th forgets that he's not president and it's Kamala Harris. Like, all kinds of stuff going on with this guy. And I think that's the best thing about this guy. Is that he is so, like, boring and basic and at the same time different. In the most in the most non-presidential way, of course. But I think that's what benefits him over all the other Democrats. You don't see Beto O'Rourke and Elizabeth Warren taking their stance against Joe Biden. But you got everyone's mom, dad, and sister running against Donald Trump on the other side of the aisle. So I think 
That's the thing with this. Yeah. It it shows how little how how few can viable candidates the Republicans have more than anything. You really can't beat this guy that just said God save the Queen as president trying to run for president <laughs> of America. Like I mean, it's just so ridiculous, Nick. Yeah, I don't know why he said it. I listened to that clip of him because he's literally speech, losing. His, and you know what? You know, it, it all. It sounded like he was almost. He was like trying to be funny to whoever asked the question. I don't know if that person was British. Maybe that's what. In any case, that's just an excuse. Like, who who knows why he would say, like again? She died. She died pretty recently. Like, let's. It, it it doesn't have the same effect that it used to, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So I, that's ultimately what we're left with: a man who's past his prime in Biden. And then a man who is a total jerk, uh, Trump, where I, I forget if we mentioned this at the start of the show, but um, there was this new story about him offering. And there was a clip online of him offering to pay for everyone's food in a restaurant. And then he just left. <laughs> he didn't pay for anyone's food. <laughs> so, um, the restaurant was... I got the restaurant's name. It was called it was called Versailles. It's a <laughs> famous it. Cuban restaurant in Miami. And it was his birthday on Wednesday. So they sang him happy birthday. Trump said food for everyone and then left without paying for the food. Oh, wow. Yeah. So let's get to Partygate. So um, speaking of the UK with God Save the Queen, uh, rest in peace, I, I guess. So Partygate has a date with the kangaroo well court. So... Um, this committee in the United Kingdom is investigating Boris Johnson and accusing him of lying and intimidating um, people after releasing a scathing report about lockdown flouting parties. Facing suspension, Johnson resigned from Parliament, calling the committee a kangaroo court. Sparks are flying as the battle over his, over his legacy heats up ahead of critical elections. And just for people's uh, background on this story, basically once the UK started going into lockdowns and the government said, everyone stay home, no big gatherings. There was a video of Boris Johnson having a gathering, <laughs> just like having a little party with people. And so it was seen as very hypocritical and not a good look for him. So Pratik and Tyler, as we end the show, what do you guys think about Boris Johnson? Who, by the way, I will add um, someone who is British and from the Financial Times, I recently interviewed someone in a series on democracy. And the guy I'm blanking on his name, but you can look it up if you just look up Financial Times FT and their democracy series and their podcasts. He basically said, you know, the United Kingdom in Boris Johnson, you have some guy who he's really funny. He's quick witted. He gets you to laugh like he's very likable. But that's no like it, it was made clear that that's not a way to actually run the country and to do well. The UK was struggling with their energy bills. They've been struggling with high prices. You have rent issues. Like, you have a bunch of issues in the UK right now. And Boris Johnson didn't do a great job, even though he was very witty and funny. And so he was sort of saying, I hope America doesn't do that again. <laughs> because, like, Trump is hilarious. Trump is really funny. He's really likable. But as far as, like, I don't know, what, what grand vision does he have for the future? Eh, it's not too inspiring. Maybe it is inspiring to some, though. So in any case... Um, with the boxes stuff, who, who knows? But in any case, Pratik Tyler, what do you think about Boris Johnson? I think it's weird how England has, UK, I should say UK, not England. UK has gone through three prime ministers in like three months. They went through, the, um, Boris Johnson resigned from his prime ministership. Theresa May. A parliament member. No, no, not Theresa May. She was before. Liz Truss. Liz Truss was there oh, for Truss. a solid month. She was there from <laughs> September 6th to October yeah. 25th. Then she stepped down, and then they've had Rushi Sunak. 
Rishi Sunak is at a more stable prime ministership compared to the last two people. Let's see how well he does. But it's just funny how many of these people have changed. They don't even really get elected. They just keep changing. Like, Theresa May won. And then, like, she can't, she basically replaced David Cameron, who stepped down. And then Theresa May stepped down. This guy becomes a new guy, Boris Johnson. He resigns. And then you have Liz Truss. She resigns. And now you got Rishi Sunak, who was actually elected. Well, not really, but he was the second in line. So now the weird thing is like they've had like so many of these random stand-in prime ministers at this point that it's like at least we're better than the UK. At least we stick with the same president for four years. These guys go through so many people in like a month. Like, Patik, one crazy. thing about Rishi Sunak is that, you know, we, we're talking so much in this country about Trump, you know, actually being charged with something. Um I guess the fines really don't matter no matter what country you're in. So Rishi Sunak, uh, in January, he put out a video of himself just talking to constituents on social media, and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt while he was in the car. And so he was actually fined by the police oh my <laughs> for, God. for not doing it. So I just think it's funny. It's like it's seen as such a small thing over there. And then over here, dude, could you imagine if some local police officer decided to charge Trump or Biden or someone else with not wearing a seatbelt? There would be pandemonium. Yeah. So, but, but but overall, people hate when you know it's like rules for thee and not for me. Where it's like, yeah. I can do whatever I want. Was it like Nancy Pelosi in the barber shop in California, where she was getting her hair cut without her mask on? She was like, oh, she tells everyone else to wear their mask. This is just what people in power do. It's real shitty. We don't like to see it. But yeah, UK is a mess. But hey, with that, we're going to be closing out the show. That's episode 135 of Politicana. Thank you for tuning in. Of course, please follow. Please share the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And of course, we will catch you next week. Later.